another decade, another new face in the James Bond chair, which means it's time to break down the 1990s James Bond songs on today's action-packed episode of That Song From That Movie. Caroline. Ba, ba, da. Ba, ba. Thank you for joining that song from that movie, the journey through the very best and worst of movie songs. I am your Bond host, Bond host, Dietrich, and we're joined by the man who will never know how I watched him from the shadows as a child, Alex. <laughs> well, I know now. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> You've just revealed yourself. How stupid of you. Yeah, I mean, I, I always felt there was a presence, but now it's been confirmed. Just watched his every move. I think it sounds more sinister in the song, but I suppose it could kind of be okay. It's quite sinister because you didn't go to the same primary school. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> he was scouting yeah. me early on as a well, friend. Well, I did go to the school. I just uh, wasn't <laughs> yeah. enrolled there. <laughs> yeah. And we're also joined by a cunning linguist, Ben. Hi. Back to you, D. Great example of that. How are we all today? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yes. Well. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Good. Watched any films? Have I watched any films? As in recently, not just ever. Just ever. <laughs> Well, let me start you all the way back from when I was 13. That's when you watched your first movie? No, but I, it kind of is a deciding point, I think, when I was like, I quite like films. I watched Heathers. You know the Ooh. film Heathers? Yeah. Is that because you've been listening to the musical? The new uh, Broadway musical? Just because we keep talking about the musical and I'd realised I'd never actually seen the original film. And was it good? But yeah, it's really good. Yeah, really good. Very good. I can see why they turned it into a musical because it's got some interesting relevance to today to say it was filmed, what, 30 years ago? Yeah. But yeah, very good. You seen anything, Alex? <laughs> yes. Me and Helen watched Muriel's Wedding last night, which is an interesting film. It's like an Australian sort of cult film. <laughs> yeah, I've never even heard of it. Have you, have, you, have you guys seen Strictly Ballroom before? Which is like a Baz Luhrmann film. I think it's like Baz Luhrmann's yes. first film. Yeah. No. It, it's, very, <laughs> it's a very similar vibe to that. Okay. I don't know if it, it's not made by Baslone, but obviously there's some sort of Australian 90s scene going on where, where people were making these quite unusual films. It was uh, interesting. It was kind of like you think it's going to be like a conventional rom-com, and it very much is not. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, I've never even heard of it. One for the list. I have not heard of either of the movies you've just said, and I didn't watch any movies myself, so I have nothing to add. What a great host Lovely. you are for movie <laughs> podcasting. I listened to some music. That's half of our name. Movie-based yeah. music? Uh, well, yeah, but it was for this episode, so yeah. I don't want to really talk about <laughs> it now. The, that's the only song you've listened to. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <sighs> Fine. So today's episode, we break down the James Bond songs of the 1990s. So we're now in the era when we're alive, when these movies come out. That is true. But still not old enough to see them in the cinema. Probably not. Maybe the last one might have been old enough if it was PG. Well, no, Die Another Day, obviously we will talk about in the future, but was the first ever 12-rated film I ever saw in the cinema. And I was not 12. It's definitely the first Bond film that I saw in the cinema. I remember sitting on the floor watching it. Sitting on the floor? Yeah, I think it was someone's birthday. I am buying you a seat, Alex. I think it was someone's birthday and and they'd overbooked the cinema, which is something they don't really do anymore, but it did used to happen. I do remember sitting on the floor for the film Dinosaur. Another mention of Dinosaur on this podcast. <laughs> yes. I know, yeah. A film I've not seen or heard of. <laughs> it's kind of a mention. So this is the part of the podcast where I would give the results for the 80s one, but I forgot this was part of it until right now. So I'm quickly scrolling back on our Twitter feed to try to find the results. Consummate professional. He doesn't watch <laughs> movies. He doesn't listen to music from movies. <laughs> doesn't do the research. I mean, what are we paying you for? That's a good question. I'm yet to see anything in my bank account. 
That's because you're not doing a good enough job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a results-based system, D. Okay, so what do I need to do for next week to get paid? You should know um, that already. We, we shouldn't yeah, have exactly. to tell you. When you do it, you'll know, because you'll get money. Because <laughs> you'll get money. I've only found the results of the final, but I can't be bothered scrolling back any further. So, in the 80s, our three finalists were, for your eyes only, The Living Daylights and A View to a Kill. No shock as to who won. A View to a Kill got 56% of the vote. Which, if my memory serves me, is the same as Living Let Die got. Oh, interesting. I feel, though, like you need to give an honourable mention to Living Daylights because we all panned it and the internet decided it was better than we thought it was. Yeah, (laughs) clearly we're missing a trick. That was the biggest shock, yeah. Yeah. So obviously we're missing something with that. (laughs) Don't know what it is. I wonder what it is. It wasn't even just that the poll results were surprisingly in favour of the Living Daylights. We got a lot of like actual direct tweets from people sort of mentioning either you were too harsh or that's my favourite. <laughs> yeah. Losing listeners, great. Should have found out what Bond song they liked in the 1990s so that we can crush it. <laughs> yeah. Let's crack on. So as usual, we'll do it in the same order. So Alex, you're up first. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the one that I've researched. So the first Bond film of the 90s was Goldeneye. And it was a 17th Eon Bond production. It was released in 1995 after a six-year hiatus due to a legal dispute between Dan Jack and MGM. So it's the longest gap between two Bond films. We're not seeing the consistency of the 80s already here, which was every two years, wasn't it, I think, in the 80s? So yeah, yeah, six years wait. Basically, Dan Jack is the company owned by Broccoli, who is the main producer in MGM. And they sort of fell out about the rights to who to who owned the film, basically. And because of the time it took, that's essentially why Brosnan ended up becoming Bond, because they wanted Dalton. And he obviously, as we mentioned previously, he was contracted to do three films. He did actually agree to do this one after the dispute was resolved, but he only still wanted to do this as his final film. But Broccoli didn't want, after a six-year gap, to have someone come back for one film. He wanted someone who was going to be there for the next three or four. So because of that, Dalton pulled out. And then he was replaced by Pierce Brosnan, who, of course, was originally offered the role for The Living Daylights. So they went back to him. I wonder where the Remington steel had ended at this point. (laughs) So yeah, it was the first to start Brosnan, as well as Dame Judi Dench as M. And I think actually a few other people, like Money Penny, was newly cast. The only person who remained was Q who I think was just, he was just in so many films, wasn't he? I think he yeah. remained. He isn't in the Daniel Craig ones, obviously. I don't think. I think he was in the first passed, one. Yeah, I think he passed away, didn't he? Did he die before? And, yeah. Nobody played Q in Casino Royale. Right, and then it was Ben Wishaw after that. Yes. Yeah. So it's directed by Martin Campbell, who actually would go on to direct Casino Royale as well, amongst other films such as Green Lantern, Vertical Limit, The Legend of Zorro. <laughs> wow, well, what, what a back catalogue. Yeah. <laughs> what a back catalogue. The synopsis of the film is Bond fights to prevent an ex-MI6 agent gone rogue from using a satellite weapon against London to cause a global financial meltdown. It's all very global at the moment, isn't it? We're oh, yeah, yeah. Global yeah, yeah. We're, we're, not, we're, not going, we're not going small fry here. It's, it's the first one back. They've got to go, like, <clears throat> full financial crisis, which, you know, is quite, I suppose, prevalent to today and the years that would follow the film. So it was the first Bond film not to utilise any story elements from an Ian Fleming novel. I know the, I think, was it Licence to Kill where you said that it wasn't based on a novel, but they must have used some story elements based on this, from what I've seen. Don't ask me. Ben did that movie. Oh, was it Ben? I think, I think you mentioned it, I'm sure. But anyway, this yeah. is according to the internet, Wikipedia in this case, <laughs> so the fountain of all knowledge, it was the first Bond film not to utilise any elements from any inflowing novel. It was the first Bond film to use CGI. 
Okay, in in relation to what? Just all. Period. It's the first. Just, there's, no, I can't remember what specifically in the film. <laughs> well, the title credits use it. I'm sure, like explosions and stuff like that, they probably used it. Yeah, I couldn't find specifically what it was. It just it just said it was the first one to use it. And the title is a homage to Ian Fleming. So although it wasn't based on the book, it's a homage to him. He took part in Operation Goldeneye while working for a British naval intelligence, and he also used the name for his estate in Jamaica. So that's the film. That is a good name for an estate. It is, yeah. Goldeneye. It kind of works with Jamaica as well. You can imagine like the golden beaches, the golden sands. So the song is Goldeneye, performed by Tina Turner. And if, before we get into the making of the song, did it find your weakness, Ben and Dee? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a it is a classic. It's a great. I mean, I just D, uh, D you kind of uh, alluded to it in your opening bit, but that line you you'll never know how I watched you from the shadows as a child. I just it, what <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, Tina? I just don't get it. What are you what are you insinuating? Because I kept th- I, I I actually had to go to the lyrics and say, oh, maybe I'm misinterpreting it. But no, there's lots of kissing and lots of talk about, you know, the usual romantic affiliations of the song. What's going on here? Who's the child in this case as well? I think the lyric <laughs> is kind of ambiguous. Is it, is it Tina Turner or is it Pierce Brosnan, E.G. James? Well, uh, yeah, I think it's just whoever's singing. I mean, she's singing it with enough passion that she clearly has a tie to it. I just don't know. Maybe it's Tina singing it to young Pierce. <laughs> well, I mean, that makes more sense in terms of their age, I suppose. Although I bet they're not that different in age. No, probably not. Tina Turner, I just associate... And to be fair, I feel like this with the song, it's slightly quite cabaret. I don't know. I just like... I think it's often Tina Turner because she's always in these sort of sparkly ball gowns. And I just imagine her like on the stage at some sort of like Vegas end of the strip nightclub on there, on, on her last legs. And I just feel it's, that song, this song is quite indicative of that very smoky, darkened room. So I think with this song, I went into it thinking... I remember liking this song and it's a thinking it's an iconic James Bond song. But once I listened to it, I realized it had a touch of the diamonds are forever where I remember the the lyric involving the movie's title. <laughs> and then the rest of it is sort of just mush in my brain. <laughs> yeah, mush. Yeah, I think I actually had a similar response to it as well. The brilliance of the song is like the last couple of bars, Do you know, like where she like really goes for it and she goes like really high up there. She like just like repeats Goldeneye over and over again. I think that's the best bit. I feel like the rest of it, other than that original Goldeneye that she sings, which I guess is the part you're referencing, D. Yep. The song feels a bit sluggish to me. It feels like it doesn't really go anywhere. I don't know. It, it definitely has kind of vibes of sort of they're trying to replicate stuff like the Shirley Bassey ones, but it definitely doesn't definitely. reach those levels. Well, I mean, maybe it reaches the level of uh, uh, Moonraker, but not not the other two. <laughs> I'll give some facts about the song. So it was actually written by Bono and Edge from U2. <laughs> wow, that is, a, that is a fact. Yeah. I was surprised when I saw their names pop up in the opening credits. Yeah, it does It does mention them, doesn't it? Because it's not something I've... Oh, really? I didn't even, no, didn't even catch it? Yeah, it does. It, it, it does list them in there. And it also lists the producer, Nellie Hooper, who has worked with Madonna, Massive Attack, U2 and Bjork. Is it the Nelly? <laughs> it's not. What a supergroup. What a supergroup. <laughs> Tina Turner, Nelly, Bono and Edge. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's not Nelly or Nelly Furtado. It's Nelly, it's Nelly Hooper. So Tina Turner recalls that the demo that she was sent by Bono was, in inverted commas, the worst. <laughs> he kind of threw it together as if he thought I wouldn't do it. And Bono, to be fair to him, did acknowledge that it was a terrible demo that he sent. So it was him singing it, and apparently it was just like really grainy and like 
he, he wasn't hitting any of the notes and she was just like, I didn't know what key I was supposed to be singing this song in. <laughs> so not a great start. I really cannot imagine Bono singing this yeah, song. No, no, I know. Yeah, it would have been interesting. But speaking of like another song for this film, there was another contender. I think we've spoken in the past about multiple songs being submitted for, for Bond films and we've talked about some oh, of the yeah. ones that didn't get selected. So there's an interesting one that wasn't chosen for this. And it was a song that was called The Golden Eye by Ace of Bass. Wow. Do you remember Ace of Bass? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All that she wants is another baby. (laughs) She's in the shadows. (laughs) (laughs) It would have worked. Well, so the song you can listen to, but it has now been called The Juvenile. Which I guess links to the child in the, in the shadows, and it features. Is, is there something in the film that I'm forgetting about child? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I really don't remember anything. I think all. it's kind of referencing the sort of Agent Six, Agent you know, Double O Six, Double O Seven. Maybe like he's like they've grown up together, kind of thing. I thought like that's maybe what it's sort of playing on. Yes, yeah, I, I don't. I don't really know. But the juvenile featured on the Ace of Base album De Campo. So I did give it a listen, obviously, because I did my research. D. Ouch. <laughs> Shade. Shade. It's kind of it's it's a weird. Song. It's kind of a cool song in a way. I mean, it would definitely have offered something a bit different to the film. It's like quite clear vocally, like it's quite crisp, and it's it's a lot str- further stripped back than the Tina Turner version. It's definitely not bells, whistles, and like a full horn section and orchestra. But I think it's it's when I was reading some of the comments and someone said something about the lyrics of the song. And how they make no sense out of the context of a Bond film. And I think like that's something that we've maybe not touched on across the films. Is like the weird lyrics that you often see. And we have spoken about it with this one. And they kind of don't really ever make much sense. Probably because they're trying to link it to the title of the film in a lot of way. But they do seem to have this sort of lyrical license. Which I've referred to as a license to metaphorical. Applause <laughs> <laughs> for applause and laughter. Wow, I mean, <laughs> you must have loved when you wrote that down. I did, yeah. I thought it was the, one of the best things I've ever written in my yeah. life. Did you, did you show your wife? <laughs> I didn't, but I might do afterwards. Were you expecting a bigger response? No, I expected pure silence. <laughs> stunned silence. Stunned silence, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah stunned silence. Do you just add in a few like seconds of silence there. <laughs> but I do think it is something that is interesting, and in how the songs, the sort of like the ghosts of Bond songs... What what actually are they? Because there's just nothing makes sense within the lyrics of a Bond song, really. So I thought it was just it was quite interesting to look at. Did you guys watch the opening credits for this one? Yeah, I did. Yes. Yep. What did you think? I mean, I'm trying to separate it from the Tina Turner music video, also, which is very similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought it was okay. I think it was probably the worst one of the three of the nineties. Um, it's very heavy on exposition. Like, yes, there's a yes, lot of, is, you know, yeah. it's basically women on parts that are relevant to the story. Like, there's a sickle, isn't there, from, like... There's a hammer yeah. on sickle, yeah. Very leaning on the story. Yeah, the sculptures of Lenin and Stalin falling over, things like that. Oh, is that what they were? Yeah. I think I was going to talk about it later on, but I think it is something to touch on now, because you just sort of mentioned it, Ben, is that the 390s ones, they go really heavy on trying to link it directly to the story of the film, which I feel is not something they've really ever done before. I know that usually they have a bit of a theme, like, oh, if it's like uh, Thunderball, it might be like them swimming in water, or like yeah. uh, Goldfinger, where they were all like painted gold. But with this, it's like, it's like, no, this film is about Russia. It's about the divisions within Russia, and here is everything. And then you see it very much with the next two as well, which we might go into. But what did you think, Dee, about this one? 
It was okay. The only bit that really sticks to my mind is the bit where the woman opens her mouth and a gun, and gun comes, comes out. out. <laughs> <laughs> it just looks so weird. It does. <laughs> Nightmare I've often had. I was literally looking up going, right, that's going to have to be the thumbnail for this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know both things that they're like, it was, I thought that the 90s ones were such a step up from the ones earlier. I don't know. I feel like they really, they really tried at these ones. I know, like we said, like maybe it's a bit on the nose with the sort of Russian things, but I feel like there was a lot going on. It sort of showed that how far technology had come in the past six years. I was going to question whether or not this was the first time, and you sort of maybe answered this earlier, but whether or not this was the first time they were being filmed on digital cameras. Because it feels like there's like a, like a fe- the feel of the film changes mm. to more of like a sort of kind of a blocky, colder feel of a digital camera. Yeah, it doesn't have that sort of gold, like glowing hue, sort of. I get, I get, yeah, yeah I get exactly. You I mean you probably are right. I didn't, I didn't look into that. Is but this an MGM just... film, Alex? You said after the dispute, is it MGM that now own Bond? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I just wonder with like the guess, like you know, when you've been doing something so long, you just rely on what you know because it's worked, and maybe with a new production company coming in and the new resources that they've got, yeah, maybe it did spice things up. I mean, Cold Night is still a very heavy action Bond. I think Timothy Dalton would have been <laughs> quite good in it, personally. But yeah, it does feel like maybe they've got a few more tools to play with. I think as well we should probably touch on the fact that it is, I, I'm sure you both will agree, but we'll find out, that it is the, by, by far the best Pierce Brosnan film. Yes, yes. Definitely. They, it, they go, I'd say they go downhill. <laughs> they get worse. Each yeah. one's progressively worse than the one that precedes yes, it. 100%, until it gets to absolute tripe. I does kind of argue that, that um, Dying of the Day... Although it is the probably the most ridiculous Bond film ever made, it's kind of more fun than World Is Not Enough because I think World Is Not Enough is the mm, mo- possibly the most yes. boring. Yeah, <laughs> out of all Bonds, it goes from the most boring to the most ridiculously outlandish out of the it's entire weird, isn't it? Bond. It's overcorrected. <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. massively. Shoot the car with a laser from space. <laughs> <laughs> the invisible car. <laughs> the invisible car as well, yeah, yeah. And, an ice, and an ice palace. Yeah, we'll have to touch on it later when we get onto the noise, but yeah, it's, uh, it's something to behold, that film, definitely. <laughs> we, we can't not talk about the video game as well, the GoldenEye video yes, game. Yeah, Possibly nice. one of the greatest first-person shooters of all time. But not to be revisited. But never Don't go back, back to it. it. Don't, yeah, don't they, go back to it. They did do a remake, though, did they not, recently? Probably. Or in the last sort of ten yeah, years? I th- it's one of those, I just remember going back to it and thinking, oh, this is going to be so cool. And it's it's not, it's really hard to play. You can't it's move so... and aim at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's so clunky. We have been spoiled in the first-person shooter world following Goldeneye. Yeah. But this this is what set it up. Yeah, 100%. Influential. Influential, yeah. But yeah, that's all I've got. If you want to know what's next. Okay, so next up is Tomorrow Never Dies, which was released in December 1997. The plot of this one, Elliot Carver, a psychopathic media mogul, plans to trigger World War Three in order to secure broadcasting rights in China. James Bond is going to stop him. <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear right at the end. I mean, I, this, this, I don't know if this is a theme developing, but those two things just don't link to me. When I talk about World is Not Enough, it's similar, but you want to start a world war for, for broadcasting rights in China. It sounds excessive, doesn't it? Just a bit. Well, I suppose maybe that's the um, the megalomaniac side. <laughs> it's it's somewhat newsworthy as of right now on recording because the uh, the Premier League in, in the UK has just pulled out of China in terms of broadcasting rights. That, that's been considered a huge thing because it's like £560 million they're going to lose out on. 
That's not even worth one Lionel Messi, maybe. That's true, but is it worth one World War Three? <laughs> <laughs> one Lionel Messi is worth one is equivalent to one World War Three. So uh, we need to take a moment here. So this was the first Bond film to be made after the death of Albert R. Broccoli. So he'd been involved with the series from the beginning, and the film is dedicated to his memory. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a long slog. Many, many films. So the title was reportedly inspired by the Beatles song Tomorrow Never Knows, which makes it the first James Bond movie title not to have any relation to Ian Fleming's life or his work or anything like that. Just completely digging him up. However, the actual title, Tomorrow Never Dies, was an accident. Was it supposed to be like Tomorrow Never Lies or something? That's right, yeah. So it was originally... <laughs> oh, is it actually right? <laughs> Yesterday never tries. <laughs> yeah, so it was originally called Tomorrow Never Lies, referring to the newspaper tomorrow in the plot of the film. Uh, but when the title was faxed to MGM, someone accidentally mistyped it as Dies. They liked it so much that they insisted on the Tomorrow Never Dies instead. Which is a better title, <laughs> it is, in yes. my opinion. Tomorrow Never Lies makes sense, but Dies, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Gold, I mean, they, they would have all been better. Golden die. Oh yeah, golden die. No, that sounds like something that you do to like uh, fabric or something, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you trying to think one for the world is not enough there, Ben? Uh, I don't know. D world is not is enough. Not... Die world. <laughs> Just that's not. Die we're not even trying anymore. Yeah. Die another day. Die another die. Dies another day. <laughs> die, it doesn't have to be the colour fast. So. Die for another day. Die for. So. Usually I just straight to the song, but we do need to talk about one aspect to this film that never came to be, and that is the return of our Lord and Saviour, John Barry. Wait, he came back, did you say? So he was in advanced negotiations to return to the franchise for this film, but it never came to be. Oh my gosh, I wonder why? Tax reasons. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you why. So in a blog post by John Barry's agent at the time, MGM and John Barry were unable to finalise a fee for him to return, but apparently the difference in the fee was really small, but for some reason neither side were willing to budge. So his agent in this blog post describes getting drunk on Christmas Eve, calling up someone at MGM and telling them that he was willing to give up his commission, hand it over to Barry, but the stipulation was that Barry wasn't to know that the extra money was actually the money that was supposed to go to the agent. Wow, what a, what a nice guy. MGM didn't think so because they called him back on Boxing Day morning and apparently the call was about 10 seconds long and the one line was, are you trying to bribe us? I mean, to be fair, knowing John Barry, it could have been a tax dodging exercise. Probably. Where was this agent and John Barry? They were probably in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> yeah, probably, wasn't it? Yeah. Almost definitely. Yeah. Summing it up. Have a cerveza. John Barry did not return and that might be the last time he's got any involvement in these films. You would think so. Except for the law. When was the... uh, I can't remember when it was. You know, the court dispute. We discussed it in the very first episode, I think. I think that was like the early noise, maybe. Oh, yeah. In relation to the theme song. Yeah. I'm glad that he's had a mention. You know, I thought we were going to go through a full decade without mentioning our Lord and Saviour. John Barry. Diane Warren. (laughs) Yeah. Who will be next? (laughs) I think Diane Warren's still alive. I meant in terms of being like an icon on the podcast, not death. (laughs) Who will be next? Well, I'll tell you who will not be next, Sheryl Crow. So the song, we'll move on to that now, was released in the same month and is entitled Tomorrow Never Dies. So brownie points for having the same name. So because of the huge success of GoldenEye in public, the song for Tomorrow Never Dies was a very hot commodity. A lot of songs were recorded and pitched to producers. They held an actual contest asking acts to get in contact with them and to see whether or not they would be willing to write a song. And we've got a few. So I'm going to go through a couple now that I thought were noteworthy is maybe a strong word, but more than just a line on Wikipedia. So you guys, all my notes are just Wikipedia. 
So one act was noted on here as wanting to do it, but were unable to find time. So that was the Cardigans. So they expressed interest, but ultimately rejected due to exhaustion from workload touring. Lead singer Nina Pearson described the decision to turn down the song for Tomorrow Never Dies as the biggest mistake she's ever made. I mean, it has to be up there as, like, achievements, because it does seem to ensure your legacy, at least cinematic. Even if they're not great songs, they're still remembered because Bond is such a powerhouse. Yeah, and uh, just like people like us, we're still talking about this song, and it's been however many years it's been, because I've moved off the bit where the year is. 23 years? Yes, that's right, yes. I mean, what else has Cheryl Crow done? Nothing for nobody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so next up, Britpop band said Etienne. Remember them? No. No. No, me neither. Recorded a song which is not very good. If I had to describe it, it sounds like a song for a third-person action game. Not Goldeneye, before anyone says it. It's, it's just so generic-sounding. I don't. I wonder if it was a B-side and they went, eh, you can have that. Mm. Next up was Danish group Swan Lee. Remember them? <laughs> this is a theme. Scandinavian bands coming up a lot, because obviously we had Ha Ha, and then we had Ace of Bass, and then you just named two here as well. What, I wonder what that is. Unless it was just a big time, like 80s and 90s for Scandinavian bands. This effort is a far more laid-back Roger Moore-esque effort, but it actually has a fully recorded music video, even though it wasn't picked. It's done in the style of the opening credits to Goldfinger, so it's like women painted gold with things projected on them, like, but it's the band performing that's being projected. Is the song called Tomorrow Never Dies, did you say? I didn't say, but it is. It is. Well, the song was ultimately used by something, though, and that was the game Hitman, Blood Money. It was used in the end credits for that game. Well, It's, it's a good song, but I can't quite see how it fits on a Hitman game. <laughs> I mean, it's the next step down after Bond, isn't it? Yes, that well-trodden path of James Bond <laughs> yeah. song rejection to Hitman. Yeah, it just depends on your hairline. Two more here. I hope this uh, opening bit has a better response. Next up was Pulp. Remember them? Yes. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Very much so. So their effort was Tomorrow Never Lies. I don't know if they did that on purpose or if it was just at that point in the writing process. That's what they were told it was going to be called. It's okay. It sounds like Jarvis Cocker's doing a Bowie impression. More so than usual. Like just his voice. Doing an impression of John Barry's voice. John Barry? John Barry? <laughs> I thought you said John Barry. I don't know why. <laughs> David Bowie? David Bowie, you said. I think you said Barry. <laughs> Imagine doing a John Barry. But who would that be for? <laughs> <laughs> who would know? Who would know? The final song I'm going to talk about that isn't the song we're actually supposed to be talking about is the runner-up, which is K.D. Lang's effort called, well, originally called Tomorrow Never Dies, later renamed Surrender. And it was written by the movie's composer, David Arnold, but it wasn't selected, obviously. However, it did make it onto the soundtrack, and it is in the end credits of the movie. That seems to be quite common in the 90s, I think. They had started making a lot more original songs for the credits as well. Yeah, yeah. It's like a big band song in the style of Shirley Bassey, and it is pretty damn good. Much better than Shell Crow's song, so I'm surprised they didn't go for it. The only thing I can think of is that they wanted something different from like what had gone previously, but nah, I don't think Shell Crow's goes too far away. Well, yeah, that's I guess that's what I was quite interested in because they're 
Goldeneye especially, I feel it is harking on the same style as previous successes. I guess it depends what you want. Do you want change? Do you want development? Or do you want the things that have worked in the past? I guess that's a difficult conundrum for any movie, song, franchise, anything. Yeah, just going by our polls. I don't know why they didn't use our polls at at the time. Every single time there's one that's a bit different, it wins. Yeah. Right, so that brings me on to the critical reception of Sherlock Crow's effort. Actually, no, it doesn't. What's your opinions of this song? I haven't got to love it yet. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't like it. Even the sharp high notes in the chorus, I almost don't think she's hitting them. <laughs> she, I, don't think, I, I don't think she's hitting them. <laughs> she's, I just wince a bit. I can just That's imagine, strange. again, a lot of, um, I don't know, maybe a lot of working men's clubs, a lot of imitations of this being even worse. <laughs> and that gives me sleepless nights. I can't imagine this is being picked in many uh, working men's clubs to be sang. <laughs> in the 90s, the, the, the circuits were very popular for Bonds. I actually feel if it was picked in any of those clubs, it could be better. It could, they could actually do a better version than Sheryl Crow does. <laughs> I think, like, the ver- I, I, I don't know, because like, I think the verse is kind of, like, sort of, like, a bit cool. And she does have, like, a distinct voice, like, a unique, unique sound. Sort of, like, a bit of a husky, sultry quality in the verses. But then the chorus just, like... She just really struggles with yeah, it. Yeah, it is a struggle. It's clearly out of, or like at the very limit of her vocal range, I think. And it just kind of like lacks any sort of powerful authority that someone like Tina Turner mm-hmm. does. It's it's really un- unusual that they put a note so high up there for her when it's clearly not where she usually sits. However, historically with James Bond, when this has happened in the past, we actually got a pretty good song out of it with Nancy Sinatra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So maybe they thought they were going to strike gold again. Well, you know, I did kind of get similar vibes, especially in the verse to the Nancy Sinatra one. But the chorus just, it doesn't cut the mustard. Because the chorus is really where you need to sell it. And I just don't think it does. I think it's probably one of the worst Bond choruses in the entire catalogue. Well, I'm, I can't really argue, but yeah. Just, I've watched the music video. She just looks really uncomfortable. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very powerful wind machine going on, which I think was all the rage in the 90s. Oversaturation of wind machines. They did have her sort of like walking and doing the turn, didn't they? The bomb yes, turn yes, yes. at the beginning, which I liked. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's a weird choice, as in Cheryl Crow. Yeah, yeah, especially given some of the other options. Well, some of them I've never even heard of. Yeah, it seems like all of them are relatively contemporary, though, as opposed to like Tina Turner. Although I suppose like she did have some success in the 90s. She's more 70s, 80s, isn't she? Yes. But whereas I feel like those options you listed, they were also very much of the time. So they were obviously, again, going for that contemporary market. But then with a non-contemporary song, yeah, I think maybe they were hoping that her sound would add something to it. Which I think, maybe. like I say, I think it does kind of in the verses. I think it clearly her singing. But then, yeah, she's just they just got it all wrong with that chorus. <laughs> Before I go on to the critical reception, do you think the opening credits helped the song? Uh, I, I thought that they were, again, they were something different to what we saw in the previous decades. But it, it kind of did look like a Windows 95 screensaver at points. <laughs> A lot of CGI. A lot of CGI. It was very screen savory. I kind of enjoyed the sort of circuit, like circuit board women who were in it. I think again, this Robo is ladies. Robo ladies. I feel like this is linked to the whole sort of like media mogul type thing. And again, yeah, it's like it's like them sure. going heavy on the concept of the film in the credits. So I kind of like that. Mm. But um, yeah, I'm not sure it was as good as the Golden Eye one. Yeah, I thought these opening credits were a bit. They're a bit dull. Not much happens. It's like they spent all of the opening credits budget on those robo ladies. Well, yeah, it's that thing of like the first sort of 30 seconds you watch it. Oh, this is interesting. And then it's the same. <laughs> yeah, okay. Compared to the just gantly clad women with projections being shown on their midriffs, at least we're getting a bit more <laughs> substance to these. Yeah. Moving away from the difficult times of the 60s and 70s and 80s. Yeah, the technological advancements have allowed them to be a bit more creative in what they do. 
Yeah. But I feel like I feel like all the nineties ones kind of just look a bit like Salvador Dali paintings come to life or realized in digital form. Like just yeah. like things yeah. falling through the sky and like I think in the in the in the last one which we'll get onto there's a lot of like melty women <laughs> liquid flowing upwards. It's it's just all a bit surreal, isn't it? Whereas before yeah, it was just women dancing with projections on them. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> jobs face on someone's thigh. <laughs> It's what everyone wants, isn't it? So I've teased this three times now. Critical reception. Go. I don't normally do a critical reception section, but I enjoyed this one so much that I thought I've got to bring it in. So I've got three here, three quotes. So the first one is Christian Clemson from Filmtracks.com. Have you ever heard of that site? Nope. Nope, me neither. <laughs> His review wished that Katie Lang's song had been selected and thought, I missed the quote, her beach bum voice and lazy performance was a disgrace to the film. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, it does, to be fair, it does seem a bit lazy, especially when you watch the video. That's what I mean. I just think, Cheryl, if you don't want to be there, you, you're doing well enough. Carry on doing your thing. I feel like what he's described there as her sort of, like, performance works in the verses. And I think it is kind of similar to that sort of Nancy Sinatra vibe. It's, like, quite cool in, like, a in a different way, but it is, does have, like, a cool element. But it's, it's really in the chorus where it does feel lazy because it's, like, she just can't, she just can't do it. So it's, like, well, why do they not try and come up with something more creative where it sounds good instead of just sticking? that normal formula and trying to strain her voice to reach the notes yeah or they could have done like a duet or something Ooh. just mix it up a bit they would later do that with Felicia Keys and Jack White <laughs> some would say unsuccessfully not you maybe but <laughs> some would I mean it's alright isn't it? it's better than this we save that gold for the next one yeah we'll save that we'll save that oh yeah, yeah it will be the next one won't it? yeah so the next review, The Rolling Stone. If I was somebody's boss at The Rolling Stone and I saw this review, I would be very annoyed. So it's two paragraphs. The first paragraph is basically saying only the Utah Killers got to number one in America. And the second paragraph says, Katie Lang's effort surrender. Now that's a Bond theme. That's it. That's the review. <laughs> Imagine presenting that to your boss. Like, I've written a review for this song. Well, it obviously got accepted, but in the, in the, in the, in the Mac. Now that's a Bond song. And yeah, I feel in that one line, we've reviewed both. <laughs> After we finish recording here, you two are going to listen to this KD Lang song and go, that's not very good. <laughs> I'll tell you now, D, I won't. <laughs> it doesn't have to be great to be better, though, does it? No, no, it doesn't. When I try to sing Tomorrow Never Dies in my head, I do now sing the KD Lang version because it, <laughs> it is a bit more memorable. It was definitely, the Tomorrow Never Dies was definitely one of those ones where I didn't properly remember it, but I wanted to go into it thinking, you know, the best opportunity. And then it gets to that chorus and I just it just makes me wince. I don't know if you remember this, Alex. In the very, like, the, the genesis of this idea of this podcast, when we used to uh, commute to and from work together, we talked about Bond songs. So we tried to na name them all. We got to this one. We couldn't remember what it, what it was or how it went. We had to play it in the car and both of us went, is this, is this right? Is this the right song? <laughs> yeah, I do remember that, actually, yeah. Yeah, because it's like, wait, Cheryl, Cheryl Crow? That's a, why would she be chosen? Yeah, it just felt like a, this can't be the version that was in the film. And it was. <laughs> and then it was, yeah. And it was. So the final review is from Entertainment Weekly. They also hated the song. Their quote is, Cheryl Crow's brittle voice lacks the operatic quality of the best Bond girls and boys, like Shirley Bassey, Tom Jones, or even Melissa Manchester. Which has a fantastic citation afterwards saying, Melissa Manchester has never recorded a James Bond song. <laughs> One of these is not like the others. Anyone even heard of Melissa Manchester? I haven't. No? I have not. Is that like Lulu's real name? <laughs> Lulu has recorded a song. Oh yeah, that's true. She said the one on the citation. Um... 
nothing's jumping out at me in the first paragraph of Wikipedia. Uh, she composed and recorded the soundtrack to the Direct 2 video, Lady in the Tramp 2, Scamp's Adventure. What a classic. What a classic <laughs> Bond film. And do you think Cheryl Crow's brittle voice would like the quality for Lady in the Tramp 2, Scamp's Adventure? Okay. Um, a chance, yeah. Yeah, let's check the chance. Did Tom Jones and Shirley Bassey do the song for Lady in the Tramp 1, Scamp's Misadventure? <laughs> Don't think it has a, uh, anything following the colon. What is that song from that movie without talking about the Academy Awards? Yes, this song was actually nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars that year. What? However, if you guys had been taking notice, the year this movie came out was 1997, which for some reason is the most explored year on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Have we we covered every single nomination yet? It's been a game, we're getting close. We must be close now. (laughs) So you already know what won this year. Celine. It was Celine, yep. This might be two in a row. It was Conair 97 as well? Yeah, it was. Yeah, Conair was nominated. Wow. We must have completed 97 now. 97, completed it, mate. Well, Men in Black was the other 97, wasn't it? But I don't know if that was nominated. For, I think I felt like that wasn't actually nominated. No, it was nominated for a Grammy. <laughs> yeah, we covered this in the episode, I think. But yeah, so unfortunately, uh, Cheryl Crow is... Uh... Actually, I have no idea if she's on her way to an EGOT or not. I suppose everyone's on her way to an EGOT in some she's way. She's probably got a Grammy. I swear every single person oh, has yeah, got a Grammy. She, even she even Melissa Manchester has a Grammy. <laughs> for a song she never recorded. I've just seen she's got a Grammy. So yeah, it seems so easy to get a Grammy. So Melissa Manchester is equal to one Will Smith. <laughs> And that concludes my section! (laughs) So that brings an end to part one of our look at the James Bond songs of the 1990s. We'll be back again next time with part two, and hopefully that involves another fun Ben Top 5. Yes. I mean, fun fun is pushing it. Just listen to that enthusiasm. It's going to be a great week next time. (laughs) Way to sell it, Ben. See you next Thursday, guys. See you next week. Bye. Bye. That was so long.